Now we're continuing in Isaiah. This time we're going to read from verse 24 to 27, a much shorter reading. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. The Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift, up, lift it up in the manner of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from his, your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. The 20th century preacher and commentator A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And the title I've given to the message this morning, uh, with apologies to Jonathan Edwards, is Sinners in the Hands of a Righteous God. What do we think about God when we bring together the reality of who God is and the reality of who we are? I'm not just talking about us as individuals, though that obviously is implied, but as Isaiah is talking here, as, as groups of, of people, as God's people, and as those who are not God's people. How, what do we think God does with all of that? All the, the million and one contradictions in who we are, our righteousness, our unrighteousness, those who are his people but turn their back on them from time to time, those who are obviously not his people and seem to be the ones who are in control of the situation as we see here. What does God make of all of that? When we think about God and as we look at what God's word reveals to us, how is it all sifted out and sorted out in a way that shows us what God is really like? And that, amongst quite a few other things, is what's happening in Isaiah chapter 10. It starts off in the first four verses by reminding us that to God, sin is serious. All sin is serious, including the sins of God's people, because God's people should know better. That's one of the great themes, isn't it, of the Old Testament, that the people to whom God had revealed himself, for whom he had done so much, and he constantly reminds them of it, yet they constantly turn their back on him. And so God doesn't ignore the sins of his people, and he challenges them in the beginning of it here, and particularly those who are the rulers of, of the people. And he challenges them particularly on the sin of injustice, the sin of unrighteous decrees, of uh, 
robbing the poor of, robbing the, the fatherless. And he says, well, what will you do when you have to give an account uh, of all of this? And he describes the, 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 the position uh, of them when his discipline and punishment comes on the people through the Assyrians who we'll talk about uh, later on. And he, he challenges them with a very important point. If God's people antagonize God and turn their back on God, then who have they left to turn to? And it reminds us, doesn't it, of the not just the wickedness of sin, but the absolute madness and foolishness of sin. So the first four verses are a theme of continuing and deserved judgment uh, against the sins of God's people. A large portion of the prophecy of this part of it, though, of course, is, is taken with the Assyrians who are definitely not God's people. They know nothing about God. They worship their own gods. They're a fierce people. They're a proud people. They were the, the, the predominant empire at the time, and they were sweeping all before them, and yet they weren't God's people. And not only were they not God's people, but they were about to be used to, to inflict severe punishment on God's people. So, how do we factor all that into the nature and character of God? Well, the fact that God uses those who are his enemies as well as our enemies doesn't mean that they escape. And this is dealt with in a very, very uh, nuanced way here. It, it's all teased out about what's actually happening. Look at verses 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil and to take the prey and so on. So the Assyrians and later on the Babylonians were used as a, a means of, of, of disciplining God's people who had turned away from God. They did not, we'll see this in more detail, they did not see themselves as instruments of the living God. They didn't know anything about the living God. But the point here is that did not restrain God from using them in whatever way he pleases. And that should be a consolation to us that you know, the people who we, we interact with, whether they be individuals, whether they be groups of people, or even nations who do terrible things, they're not running away from God's plan. They're not operating outside of God's plan. Even the God who they don't know about, even the God who perhaps they deny or, or despise, like it or not, they can only operate within the bounds of the sovereignty uh, of God. And as we saw, ultimately, in Romans 8, reminds us that even when God is severely disciplining his people, he is doing it for their good to make them more like him. In verses 7 to 12, this is, is teased out in, in, in a very open way. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. It's in his heart to destroy, to cut off not a few nations. So God is saying, look, at, I'm not saying here that the Assyrians deep down know that they're being used as instruments of mine. Far from it. They're arrogant against me. They're exalting themselves above me. You remember whenever the Assyrian king uh, uh, sent the, the emissaries to um, um, Hezekiah, 
And he says, don't think that your God can save you. Has any of the gods of any of the other nations saved them? Then your God won't save you either. He despised God. And yet, here is God, who he despises, saying, I know what's going on in his heart. Yet for all that, he still can only do what I plan and purpose him to do. From his point of view, he's proudly sinning and will receive the judgment that that deserves. So even as he's being used as an instrument uh, to discipline God's people, because he's doing it for his own proud reasons, he's incurring more and more sin uh, himself. Therefore, God says in verse 12, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. Why? Because he says, by my strength of my hand I have done it, by my wisdom, for I am prudent, also I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasurers. treasures. So, God says, I know exactly the motive that's driving the king of Assyria. And he is exalting himself uh, above me. Nonetheless, for my perfect plan, and ultimately for the good of my people, I'm going to use him as an instrument. So these ungodly nations and ungodly individuals too very often view what is happening to them uh, as them being in control. This is my plan, my agenda. God says, well, you can say that, you can think that, you can believe that, but you know what? It's my plan and my agenda. You know, as we look at what's happening in the world at the moment, sometimes we, we despair, don't we? Even as Christians, we say, Lord, I, I know you're in control, but it certainly doesn't look like it. And he says, well, I know it doesn't look like it. That's where faith comes in. <laughs> I didn't tell you it would always look like it. In fact, I'm telling you here, sometimes it will look exactly the opposite. But I am the Lord, and I do not change. And what's really happening here. And, and, and these prophecies are so important because they, they reveal to God's people when they most needed it, at least deserved it, a, a view of, of what's happening in their situation and in their lives. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as a if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. And the picture here is like a, a wooden rod or a saw or a, a hatchet or an axe. You know, it will lie there gathering dust forever unless somebody who's in control lifts it up and starts to use it. And ultimately, that's what these uh, unbelieving individuals or nations are in God's hands. It's good to remember, it's necessary, it's vital to remember that all our enemies who boast against us and that boast against God, even the great enemy himself, Satan, is ultimately an instrument in the hand of our great God. I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's one of my favorite sayings. As Christians, we need to remember that our worst enemy is in the hands of our best friend. Our worst enemy is in the hands of our best friend. 
That's what Job had to learn, wasn't it? <laughs> Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. For I know that when I am tested, I will come forth as pure gold. And after he'd gone through his refining process, he knew so much more about God. And in verses 16 and 19, God holds these Assyrians responsible for their attitudes and actions. So when the wicked are doing what they're doing and you are powerless to stop them and perhaps you're at the, the rough end of receiving what they're doing, you say, Lord, this is not fair. God says, just hold on. Wait, this is not the final say. This is not the final judgment. They will be accountable. Even if what I let them do, I'm working it for good. They're purposing it for evil and they will have to give an account uh, for that. And their strength and their power and the glory will disappear like someone who, who, who suddenly uh, gets, get, gets sick. Look at what he says in verse 16. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness upon these fat ones. Under his glory he will kindle a burning like a burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. He will burn and devour. devour. He will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field. Both soul and body, they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. As I said last week, if we were, look, if we were to look for this great and terrible and world-conquering Assyrian Empire today, we would have to get a degree in archaeology and dig in the sands of Iraq to find it. And so it will be the same with the, the people, the situations, the, the, the empires that we face today. It is written, it is spoken by God, it shall be so. But there's something else that's spoken by God. And that was the last uh, section that we, we, we dipped into. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. Notice he's not saying, well, really, I'm going to stop the Assyrians. Uh, they're not going to allow you to be doing anything. He says, look at, yes, they are terrible. I am using them for a purpose, but look at, bear with me. Trust what I'm doing. He shall strike you with a rod. Oh, <laughs> we don't like when God says that, do we? Don't be afraid. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. And what is God doing here? He says, look at, remember, remember what I've done before. For 400 years, you dwelt in Egypt. And towards the end of that time, it seemed as though the Egyptians were determined and able to actually wipe you out. All the, the male children were, had to be cast into the, the Nile. And Israel cried out to God. And not only did Egypt not destroy Israel, but God delivered Egypt, delivered Israel, and destroyed Egypt. And it, it, it was the great defining event in making uh, Israel uh, a people in the first place. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. So here, God is guaranteeing that a remnant will return to a right relationship with him. 
They'll be no longer trusting uh, in themselves. The, 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 the issues which had, uh, had brought about this need for, for uh, God's discipline will be dealt with. Look at verses 20 to 23. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, on Yahweh, and the Holy One of Israel in truth. This all started, if you remember, when Judah sought alliances with Assyria, the ones who would ultimately come and plunder them. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, for though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. Destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all of the land. And God's people will be challenged to see the, the painful discipline that they now have to endure, not as God turning his back on them, but God's means of dealing with them for their good. And it is, it's, it's measured out. Look at that verse, verse 25. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease. It's a great pattern in Scripture, isn't it? Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, God's discipline to us is, is very measured, but His grace is unlimited. God's dealing with us for all our, our, our sins is no more than is necessary to bring us back to him. And then look at verse 26. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him. This is for the Assyrian. Like the slaughter of Midian on the rock of Or. We talked about uh, how Gideon had been used by God to totally destroy the Midianites and the Amalekites uh, uh, last time round. As his rod was on the sea, he was talking about, remember Moses lifted up his rod, the rod of God over the sea, and it parted. So he would lift it up in the manner of Egypt. Again, bringing them back to what God had done for them in the past. You know, as we, as we go through times of trial and difficulty, maybe there are times of trial and difficulty that, that God has had to bring to, to bring us back to himself. We, we remember, don't we? we? We look back on what God has been to us and that the promises he has always made and always kept. And although we don't see him now in a gracious way, he is still a gracious God. Someone put it this way. It doesn't matter how dark the cloud is, the sun is still as bright behind it. And the cloud will pass. So just as God had so wonderfully defeated the enemies of his people in the past, so we can trust him and his word now to see us through. The God who doesn't change is the same now, is the same in the future as he was in the past. Behold, I am the Lord, he says, I do not change. Then you have this curious verse with which we, we ended that short reading. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder. This is the burden of, of oppression. His yoke from your neck symbolizing slavery. And the yoke will be destroyed because 
of the anointing oil. There was something special about God's people. Their priests, their kings were anointed, weren't they? It was a symbol that they weren't priests like the pagan priests. They weren't kings like the pagan kings. These were priests who knew the, the true God and led the people in the worship of the true God. They were anointed. They were set apart for that. These kings were not like the pagan kings, or at least they weren't meant to be. These were kings who led the people in God's law. When the, the Israelite kings were chosen, they were given a copy of, of God's law because there was a law to which they were answerable. Their anointing made them special. And God's people today in the New Testament are described as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We have been anointed through our relationship with God, through the anointed one, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him, because of him, we know that even when God is using the enemy for our good, and it's not pleasant, when God is using the enemy for our good, it is for our good. Why? Because of the anointing, because of the anointed one, because of the Christ. We can look at the circumstances of life totally differently. That's what the end of Romans 8 is all about, isn't it? I'm persuaded that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, our Lord we look at what God is doing in a totally different way because of the anointed one. We are chosen in Christ. We're chosen in the anointed one. We're redeemed by the Messiah, by the anointed one. We're interceded for by the anointed one. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of Christ, the anointed one. We're awaiting for his return and so our salvation is assured. Because, well, someone put it this way. God's people are not chosen because they're special. But they are special because they're chosen. We're chosen in the chosen one. We're chosen in the anointed one. And for that we look at the promises of God and we say, yes, all the promises of God apply to me, not because I'm special in myself, but because I am chosen in the special one. And so I can look at life, not as the unbeliever looks at it. I may have to endure the same problems and disasters and trials and difficulties, or perhaps even worse. But I can say, like he or she cannot say, I know that in all things God works together for my good. Who, is, who are called according to, the, to his purposes. Look at verses 28 to 34. It's a, it's a long section at the end. But the, the basic gist of it is this. There's a contrast between what the Assyrians will do and what God will do. Verses 28 to 32, we're given the, the list of all that's going to happen. And then verse 32 and verse 33. Verse 32 
culminates with the Assyrians coming and shaking their fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down. The haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Whenever the Assyrians, or whoever or whatever our enemy happens to be called, comes looming into our lives, let's be honest, our immediate reaction is to panic. Maybe we feel a little bit self-righteous and say, well, Lord, what have I done to deserve this? And he says, how long have you got? <laughs> and uh, we have to come back and say, Lord, I deserve so much more than this. I thank you, Lord, you're, you're, you're being so gentle in your, your, your punishment. Paul says, our light momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory that far out weighs it. And so God is saying here, remember I've told you before how it's going to be. Don't look at what the enemy is doing without seeing that it's me who's doing it for a totally different purpose for your good. Remember I've promised to be with you uh, through it all. That's what God's people had to learn at this very, very difficult time. And what they had to learn, I think, we all need to, to remember. Amen.